how do we know who would make a good elder? So, question, where would you turn in the Bible if you wanted to answer this question? My guess is that for some of us, we would turn to 1 Timothy 3 and we would turn to Titus 1 because these are obvious places that provide direct practical teaching on this topic and that's why we're drawn to them because they're so practical. They give us lists, actually, of qualifications that elders and overseers and deacons should have. And so I wrestled for weeks on whether to teach on one or both of those topics. And I actually decided against it for, not those topics, those particular passages. I decided against it for one major reason. And that is that we're very likely to misunderstand and to misapply these texts if we're not careful. In fact, if you're interested, as I was thinking and praying and studying in in preparation um, for our upcoming elders vote for teaching on this, Um, I wrote a somewhat long article on how to better understand these and other texts and what the New Testament has to say and what it does or doesn't tell us about church leadership. And so you're welcome to pick up a copy of that in the foyer after the service. In a nutshell, though, here's the limitation of, of those particular texts. They were written by Paul, inspired by God's Spirit, to Timothy in Ephesus, and to Titus in Crete. Two young men who... Paul had dispatched on specific assignments to churches in those two particular places. And Paul wrote those letters to instruct each of those young men about what they particularly needed to do to solve problems in those churches which required their presence there. So, for example, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. In the Ephesian churches, evidently, and we know this from other places in Scripture, there were false teachers. Some of them were leaders of the churches. And Timothy was there representing Paul, and Paul was writing to Timothy to deal with this particular problem. And then over in Titus 1, Paul writes to Titus, who's on the island of Crete, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So again, a very specific situation. So we have two very specific letters addressing what's going on in those particular places, in particular churches, at a particular point in time. And in those contexts, Paul gave qualifications to help in the selecting of the particular types of leaders needed by those churches. In Ephesus, it was overseers and deacons. In Crete, it was elders and overseers. Now, don't miss, though, that the leaders that Paul gives qualifications for in those texts aren't the only leaders in those churches, right? Because Timothy and Titus are in those churches. They're leaders, too. We don't know what their job title was, and they likely weren't permanent, but they were a big part of the leadership picture when the letters were being written to those churches, Paul also was providing leadership over those churches as an apostle from a distance. And so it's not just about deacons and elders and overseers. There are other leaders functioning and playing an important role in those churches too. We also need to realize that those churches that Paul was giving instructions about were very different from our church. We know that in New Testament times, almost all churches were house churches. They were likely made up of several dozen people meeting in homes. 
And Paul was talking to Timothy, Paul was talking to Titus about leaders for house churches or for networks of house churches, not for churches like we have today. So there's a lot that those texts can tell us about church leadership, and they are God's word to us today. But it would be a big mistake, in my opinion, to apply those texts directly to our situation without doing the hard work of study, of looking at the details of those situations and figuring out in what ways they do or don't apply to our situation today. And since that's a much bigger task than what we can do in half an hour, I decided um, that you can read the article if you're interested. Uh, But for this morning, I'd pick a more general passage, which more quickly brings us to the bigger picture and is more directly and immediately applicable to our situation. And it's a passage which is very dear to our church. Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 13. In fact, this passage is core to the DNA of who we are as a church. Because this passage reminds us of one of the core values of our church, which goes back to our founders, to our brethren roots. It's the value that everyone is involved Everyone involved. That's one of our core values as a church. Last Sunday, we remembered Martin Luther's recovery of the biblical principle of the priesthood of all believers. And we saw um, that, that at CBC, um, th- this, isn't, uh, that it's, uh, this isn't just uh, the pastor or the clergy who have a ministry, and everyone else benefits from that ministry, but rather, we, we realized as a church um, that this passage, and we do realize as a church, this passage in, in Ephesians teaches that everyone who follows Jesus has a ministry, has a calling, has a purpose. Everyone gets to be involved in ministry. And so at CBC, the pastors and the church staff, we aren't here to do the ministry for you. We're not here to do the ministry to you. But rather, we're here to equip you to have a ministry yourself, to be a part of a ministry yourself. So let's take a look at this passage this morning. The context for this passage is described in verses 9 and 10. And it's Christ's great, amazing, overwhelming victory over everything wicked and wild in this world. A victory over death, a victory over sin and evil, a victory over Satan. Christ has won this victory decisively through his death and resurrection. The victory is not fully realized yet, is it? But the decisive turning point in the victory has taken place and the victory is assured. And so Paul, um, if you read through Ephesians, he, he, he talks about that victory. And, and here in, in our passage, he quotes Psalm 68, which is a psalm celebrating God's great Old Testament victories. Psalm 68 celebrates God's great victory over Egypt in the days of Moses as God vanquished Pharaoh's forces in the Red Sea and led his people into freedom. And, and Psalm 68 also celebrates David's, uh, King David's victory over the Philistines and over the Jebusites and over the other Canaanite enemies to give God's people peace and rest, to establish them in, in the, the land, uh, to establish God's temple and God's throne, particularly in Jerusalem which David sets up as his capital city and makes arrangements for the temple to be built there. And and so this psalm celebrates all that. And Paul sees this psalm and he sees an echo. He sees a precursor of God's far greater victory, which was coming and now has come in Jesus Christ. 
And Paul points out that in the ancient world, whenever a king won a great victory, the king took captives from among the enemy and took other plunder as well. And then as the king came home and returned and there were victory celebrations that, that followed, the king would distribute some of that plunder as gifts to his own people as a celebration of the victory. Now, it's offensive by our standards today, but back in that day, some of those gifts were the captives that the king had taken, given as slaves to his own people. And, and Paul is picking up on that image, that common thing that, that happened at that day, and, and he's in, in effect saying, that's kind of what Christ did when Christ won his great and ultimate victory over the forces of evil in this world. Christ celebrated by giving out gifts. And, and uh, gifts from among the plunder and gifts also from among the captives. And so, verse 8, quoting Psalm 68, 18, Paul writes, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Or as Paul put it in verse 7, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And in Greek, this word grace is very closely related to the word gift. And so, verse 7, you could translate this way, but to each one of us, gifts have been given as Christ apportioned them. Christ, the victorious king, has won the great victory over his enemies, and in celebration, he has given, he has apportioned out from the plunder gifts to each one of us. Are you following me so far, what, where Paul's going with this? Okay, so question, what are these gifts? What are these gifts that Christ has apportioned out from the plunder in celebration of his victory that he's given to us? Well, this is where the passage gets a bit tricky because it's not entirely clear. And so let me give you two possible answers. One is that the gifts Christ gives out in celebration of his victory are what we often call spiritual gifts. They're supernatural abilities, they're spirit-given callings which God gives each one of us. And if this is the case, then down in verse 11, Paul describes what those gifts are, or what some of them are anyway. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Spiritual gifts apportioned to each of us by Christ. To some, the spiritual gift to be an apostle. To others, the gift to be a prophet. To others, the gift to be an evangelist or a pastor or a teacher. Each of us has been given a gift, maybe more than one gift, where Christ apportions different gifts to different people. Um, but we've been given a gift to be one of these things, at least one, or perhaps to be other things as well that are described in other passages of Scripture. But here's what's clear in verse 7. Paul says, To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. We've all been given gifts. Okay, so that's one possible interpretation of what these gifts are that, that Christ gives out to his people in celebration of his victory. They're spirit-given abilities. They're spiritual gifts. Now, here's the other possible interpretation or another possible interpretation, and that is that the gifts are not the spiritual gifts, but they're the people themselves. The people are the gifts. The apostles are the gifts. The prophets are the gifts. The pastors, evangelists, teachers are the gifts. 
These gifts are the captives whom Christ took in winning his great victory. Christ took people captive, rescuing them from sin, rescuing them from death, rescuing them from from Satan and from darkness and from addiction, from all sorts of things. Christ took them captive, so to speak, and then transformed them and gave them back to his people as gifts. Ah, you could think of it this way as an example. At one point, Paul himself was an enemy of Christ, bent on destroying Christ's followers. But Christ, so to speak, engaged Paul in battle, and through the power of his death and resurrection, Christ overpowered Paul, defeated him, transformed him, and then gave him as an apostle back to the church as a gift. Paul thinks this way. In in 2 Corinthians 2.14, there Paul says of himself and his fellow apostles, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal victory procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Here Paul says, we apostles, we're nothing great. We're just people who didn't know God people who had turned away from God, people who were going our own way, those who were Christ's enemies, who Christ defeated. Christ is the one who's the victor. We're just those he's captured by his grace, by his love. And now we tag along behind him as his captives, as his servants, showing everyone how great he is. And so in this interpretation, the gifts Christ has given each one of us are the apostles, The prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Christ has given them um, to each of us in order to help us, to train us, to prepare us, to equip us so we can take our place, so we can take up our ministry in Christ's body to to help it, to um, help others grow to maturity. So two interpretations. But whichever you take, here's the thing that Paul is saying. Christ has won the great victory in this world. And in celebration, Christ has given us each gifts. What are the gifts? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, pastor. Either the people, leaders, we've we've each been given to equip us for ministry, or the spiritual gifts themselves to enable us all to equip one another for ministry. Either way, the purpose of the gifts is so that God's people get equipped so that we can do works of ministry so that the body of Christ gets built up. So question, are all of these gifts still around today? Apostles? Prophets? Well, let's take a few minutes to define or describe what each of these five gifts are, and that will help us to decide. So first, apostles. The word apostle literally means simply one who is sent, a sent one, a representative, a messenger, an ambassador, And this word apostles used in two ways in the New Testament. First, it's used for a very select group of 12 people that Jesus chose and sent as his apostles. These were 12 men, Jews Jews living with Jesus at the time that he lived. He selected them. They knew him personally. They followed him around. He taught them in depth. They personally witnessed his death and resurrection. And then he sent them out. And when these 12 apostles died, this sort of apostleship died with them. But there's a second group of people the New Testament also calls apostles. In Acts 14, 14, Barnabas is called an apostle. In uh, Romans 16, 7, Andronicus and Junia are likely called apostles. 
In 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 and 2, 6, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are called apostles. These are leaders who've been sent out by the Holy Spirit or by the church to, to, to preach the good news about Jesus and to start churches in new places. Today, we might call some of them missionaries. They're pioneers. They, they're people who, who are gifted to take new ground, to start new things, to explore new frontiers. And God still gifts people today for this task. I mean, just think of some of the missionaries our church supports. Think of the Noonans in the Middle East, for example. Think of, um, I suspect, when CBC was getting started, some of those who were a driving force to, to get this church going, they had these sort of starting up, pioneering gifts as well. Christ gives these sorts of people as gifts to the church so that God's kingdom keeps growing and keeps expanding in new places. Next is prophets. There's been a lot of debate about whether there's still prophets in the church today or whether prophets died out when the apostles did or once we had the New Testament. Well, here's what I'd say about this. The burden of proof is on those who say prophets no longer exist to prove their case for two reasons. First, because while the New Testament does say that prophecy will cease, it does not say when it will cease. Would it cease when the apostles died? Would it cease when the New Testament was completed? Or will it cease when Jesus comes back someday? Someday soon, perhaps. But the Bible doesn't tell us. So combine that with the fact that second... People today are still receiving messages from God, which provide encouragement and direction and correction to the church. Now, I realize there's also a lot of crazy stuff that goes on in the name of prophecy. Like, God told me that we're going to get married. (laughs) Or, uh, God told me that all my viewers who send me at least $500 for my ministry will receive a mighty blessing from the Lord. Sure, there are false prophets, but... There are false teachers too, right? (laughs) But we don't say the gift of teaching has ceased, therefore. So there are false prophets, but, but that doesn't negate the fact that in churches all over the world, there are people who get spiritual pictures, who hear clear words, which when they share them with other people, those are used powerfully to minister to those people. So has prophecy ceased? Well, God can do whatever God wants, but I've never heard an argument from the Bible which has convinced me that it has ceased. Well, what about evangelists? These are those who, whenever churches get bogged down in church affairs, they remind us, guys, let's not forget about the people out there who don't know Jesus yet. We need to get out there and reach them. Evangelists aren't all Billy Grahams. They don't, don't all stand on street corners and hand out tracts. Often they're just winsome people who, who like to get to know new people and, and to share their enthusiasm about Jesus and what Jesus has done in their lives and, and for the world. And then there are shepherds, pastors. The Greek word here can be translated pastor or shepherd. It's actually, um, or I'm actually rather going to use the word shepherd because Often when we hear pastor, we think about the paid guy who talks a lot. Um, But that's not what the Bible means by pastor or shepherd. No, shepherds are people who care about people. They care about making sure people are guided and protected, that they're fed spiritually, that they grow. Some of them are highly relational. They draw close to people. 
Others organize simple systems and procedures to make sure people are getting fed and guided and protected and taken care of. Shepherds. Then lastly, teachers. Those gifted not necessarily to teach in the classroom or from a pulpit, but in various ways, formal and informal, they're passionate to see people be trained and mentored and instructed to better follow Jesus. They want people to clearly understand God's word. They want people to know what they believe. They want people to practically know how to follow Jesus and how to live it out. So five gifts. Either people, leaders, or five among gifts that all believers have. Now here's the interesting thing about these five. Shepherds, pastors, are hardly mentioned in the New Testament. In fact, this is the only place that the word shepherd or pastor is used in relation to a church gift or leader. And there are two other places in the New Testament that use the verb shepherding to shepherd. Um, In both cases, it's church elders who are um, doing the shepherding in those cases. Teachers are mentioned, but always, like here, after the apostles and the prophets. Always further down the list. So question, why do we almost always talk about and focus on the value of shepherds and teachers and ignore apostles, prophets, and evangelists when apostles and prophets in particular are the most often mentioned ministry roles in the New Testament? Partly it's probably because we're not sure what to do with apostles and prophets. Maybe we think they don't exist anymore. But partly I think it's also for another reason. Let me explain what it is. It's that by and large, the Western church today is no longer a church on a mission like the New Testament church was. When Paul is writing Ephesians and Paul is picturing the church, what is Paul picturing? Not an institution, Not a a series of buildings in towns and cities all over the place, staffed by professional clergy, holding Sunday services, offering other ministry programs to anyone they can attract to show up. That's not the kind of world Paul's living in. What kind of world is he living in? He's living in a largely what would be called a pagan world at that time. And the church is almost brand new. And so when Paul pictures the church, Paul is picturing a growing, expanding network of small countercultural communities meeting mainly in homes. In in Paul's view, the, the church might be small now, but it has a mighty purpose. It has a great mission to take the victory of Christ, the message of Christ, and spread it all over the world. Spreading it how? In humility, through servanthood, through sacrifice, with love, as well as speaking the gospel message with words of truth, telling about Jesus, showing about Jesus. And so in Paul's days, in Paul's day, apostles are, are going out and they're starting churches in new cities and new regions. Evangelists are going out and they're telling people about Jesus and they're inviting people to follow Jesus. Apostles and prophets are doing, or, and evangelists are doing miracles too to let people taste and experience the power of this victory that Christ has won. And new churches are being started all the time in city after city, and they're all connected through relationships with the apostles and with traveling prophets and teachers and others who visit them to encourage them or who send them letters. 
And so for the church to mature, for this movement of Jesus' communities to grow, as Paul wants, as God wants, apostles and prophets and evangelists are absolutely vital. As well as shepherds and teachers who then come in behind and and stay in these little house churches and teach and care for and organize and equip them to to grow in Christ, to, to have a ministry to their local communities and to one another and to reach out to their friends and families. But we don't need apostles and prophets or evangelists anymore, right? No, because everyone's already been reached now. The world, America for that matter, is just full of followers of Jesus who understand and live out what it means to follow Jesus. Everyone's already in church. We just need shepherds and teachers to to teach us and take care of us and protect us and keep us safe, right? Not so much, (laughs) Maybe that was true at one point, at least in America, or that's our picture of what America was like, but it's certainly not true today. So why do we still think that shepherds and teachers are the only leaders we need? Those who can speak well, those who can teach the Bible, those who will listen to us and care for us. What about the other gifts that Christ has given the church? What about people like Paul who keep pushing us out, who who will shake us up, who will challenge us to start new things and remind us of our mission? Those who, who won't let us forget about the places, about the people out there who don't know anyone who can show them what it really looks like to follow Jesus. And so as we elect elders this year, Yeah, yes, let's read over 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And then let's also consider this grid that is given to us here in Ephesians 4. As Paul reminds us about all the kinds of gifts that Christ has given the church. I've given you an insert. This one. A lot of inserts this morning. Um, It's in your bulletin. Uh, and it's to help you do this as, as you're praying about who you might elect for elders. To think, who are the apostles? Who are the pioneers, the entrepreneurs, the, those who have creative ideas, who, who start new things, who push us into new territories? And who are the prophets? Who are those who take time to get away and listen quietly to God and they have a hunger for people to be more faithful and for people to hear from God and sometimes they're creative people. They're people who feel a disease and unrest with the way things that are. They sense that this is not the way God wants things to be because they, they know God is calling us to be more pure, more holy, more just, more faithful, more loving. And then what about the evangelists, the, the winsome, persuasive, likable people who, who get enthusiastic about something and they just have to tell everyone. And, and so when they fall in love with Jesus, they have a way of drawing others to Jesus as well. And then who are the shepherds? The, those who value people, who want to see people be protected and guided and they want to see people grow. And then finally, who are the teachers? They want people to know God's word. They want people to live it out. And they can teach, they can train, they can disciple, they can mentor people to do that. They each have their own style. For some, it's up front. For others, maybe it's in smaller groups or one-on-one, but they're teachers. Are there godly, mature leaders in this church who fit each of these categories who we can elect? And if not, can we pray that God would bring us some?
or raise some up for the future. And what about you? Does, does one of these sound a little bit like you? Do you need to grow in that area so that God can use you better, so that you can be a gift to the rest of us? Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness, for the gifts that you give us. Thank you for the potential that you have set within each of us as you call us to yourself. You call us to be transformed. You call us to be healed. You call our hearts to be strengthened and sweetened by your gospel. I pray that you would lead us fully into the purpose that you have for each one of us and that that would be a good gift to the church and that that would be a good gift to the community around us. In Jesus' name, amen.